The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, today's passage comes from Exodus 34, uh, verse 29 through 35. If you have a Bible under your seats and would like to follow along, it is on page 49, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. The Shining Face of Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near. And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would pull the veil, would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. This has been God's word. Good morning. All right. I know some of you guys are probably getting a little tired of it, but we have now been in the book of Exodus since September. And I was counting last night. This is the 28th Sunday that we've been in the book of Exodus. And so if you've been here from the start with the Church plant, this will be the sixth book of the Bible that we've been able to work through together. We do that intentionally, as most of you guys know. Uh, We want to avoid preaching on specific topics, and we'd rather just let God's Word tell us what we should be learning. And so uh, it's interesting, I was thinking back, September feels like a long time ago for me, uh, probably for some of you. A lot's happened in each one of our lives since September, I would venture to say, some of which, looking around, I'm Remembering some things that have happened, good, bad, hard, um, enjoyable. Uh, a lot of different kind of varieties of emotions have happened in each one of us as long as we've been in the book of Exodus. It's interesting, too, because Exodus, uh, if we think back, it feels like a long time ago, but if we think back, uh, the story of God taking the Israelites out of a land They were enslaved, they were in bondage for over 400 years. He takes them and he he frees them and then takes them to the Red Sea where by faith, they have to demonstrate some faith in God that he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he'll do. He takes them across the uh, Red Sea and then puts them in the wilderness on a journey towards the promised land, towards the final destination for the people of God. And along the way, they fumble and mumble and grumble and they kind of trip over their own feet. They don't trust God. They have idol worship. There's a lot of different things that go on. And Exodus, almost to a T, mirrors the Christian life, doesn't it? Where we are freed by God from sin, being enslaved to sin, and we are taken on a journey towards the promised land. And the interesting piece about the book of Exodus 
and the Christian life is that they, they all culminate at one place. They, they all collide at the same location, and that's the glory of God. Last week, uh, Randy uh, spoke about the fact that we were all made for glory. We all long for it, we hunger for it, we desire after it, but where do we find it? And the Exodus, the Israelite people, are in the middle of, at the end of the book, discovering for really the first time what exactly the glory of God is. And that is our journey too as Christians, and that will be our uh, end destination one day when we are with Christ. And so I I feel like I, I need to share this. I don't want to. I've been wrestling with it. I'll just be honest with, with you guys. I've been thinking on the glory of God for the last week or so. Um, and it has personally for me been one of the most, um, I don't even know the word, one of the most intense but joyful experiences of my Christian life. God saved me 10 years ago. And there have been maybe two other times where I have felt this undone. I feel completely and totally undone. When I, when I read Isaiah 6, and it says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I feel like that. I feel like that when I think about the glory of God. And I I want so badly this morning to be able to articulate clearly as best I can the beauty and the wonder that is found in the glory of God. And, and I'm not sure exactly what's going to come out this morning. Um, I, I feel emotionally a little all over the place, and I don't mean to. Um, but it has been one of the deepest joys of my 10 years in knowing the Lord is last four or five days. And I, I hope more than anything that today, you and I together will be able to infiltrate that joy that's found in Christ. It's found in his glory. So that's my aim. That's my only aim this morning. Um, if it's okay with you guys, I'm going to pray for me more than anything, but for all of us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we love you, and sometimes we don't know why or how, but we do. And we love you because of the love that you pursued us with. Lord, that before time began, We were written on your heart. Lord, as you were creating and orchestrating 
You have pursued us with your love. And it's not just so that we could know your love, but so that we could share in the deep joy and satisfaction that's found in your glory. <clears throat> Would you come this morning and open our eyes? Give me the words to say. I, I don't have them right now. Would you give us hearts that are, are moved towards affection in you? We ask these things in, in Christ's name. Amen. So let me just kind of very briefly, next week, Jonathan will close us out with the book of Exodus. And um, we'll be moving on to 1 Thessalonians, which I'm very excited about. But where we are just sort of in the storyline, the narrative of Exodus is, so Moses in Exodus 20 goes up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and spends 40 days and 40 nights with, with God. And he gives him the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down, all of a sudden Moses sees the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. And so in his anger, Moses throws down the tablets. He doesn't know what else to do. Well, that sort of uh, put a wrench in the purpose of being able to articulate the commandments to the people. And so God says, Moses, uh, I I'm sending you guys away, and I'm not going with you. And this is what Randy talked about last week. And then Moses pleads or really barters with God and says, if, you won't, if your presence won't go with us, don't send us. And so God says, okay. What I want you to do is come back up to the mountain and we're gonna redo this commandment thing. So Moses goes back up to Mount Sinai and God, again, writes on stone tablets the Ten Commandments. And so Moses now has spent two separate sessions of 40 days and 40 nights up with the presence of God. He said, talking to him as a friend would talk. And so as Moses is coming down the mountain with the commandments in hand, his face is shining. And we don't really know exactly what that meant, but we have some indication of what kind of emotions that would have stirred in the Israelites. Uh, the Israelites were fearful. I mean, because they, they have been slaves, and now they've been in the wilderness. And this would have been really the, the first experience, real experience, with tasting the glory of God. And it was overwhelming. They, they didn't have a category for it. They didn't know what to do with it. And so Moses comes down, and he shares with them the commandments. But it says that for the sake of the people, Moses had to wear a veil over his face. And there's a couple things about the veil that we'll get into just a little bit later. Um, but the purpose is that Moses and the Israelites are learning how to deal with or wrestle with the glory of God. And so if you've been in church for any amount of time, a week, or even 15, 20, 30, 40 years, you have heard things about the glory of God. You've heard, a, to God's glory, we should glorify God. Every type of phrase using the glory of God, it's pretty common language in the church. But what I had to square up with this week is I wasn't 100% sure that I knew exactly what that meant. It's kind of It's kind of like a, <clears throat> it's kind of like the word beauty, right? So there's a, there's a lot of ways to describe beauty. A sunset can be beautiful, uh, a spouse or a child, a particular architectural structure, a painting, 
there's a lot of different sides to the word beauty. It's kind of an abstract term. Whereas, let's say I was describing paper to you, what it feels like, what it sounds like, you write on it, it looks like this, these are its dimensions. If you walked into a room, you'd be able to know what a piece of paper was if you had never seen it before. But glory, like beauty, doesn't necessarily work like that. It has a lot of dimensions to it. And so my only aim today is to give a a robust biblical definition to the word glory. And the Bible gives us four, it gives us a lot of others, but four main ways or uh, identifying marks to the glory of God. And so it's, it's a lot like uh, looking at something from a bunch of different vantage points. If we were all standing around a building, we would see the building from different angles. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take the Bible and see God's glory from a couple of different angles. And then at the end, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? What do we do with the glory of God? How does that affect you and I who have to get up tomorrow and go to work? What do we do with it? Okay? So the first, the first thing I want to do is to give us a, a sort of a baseline definition. So this is our, our working definition for the glory of God this morning is that it's the going public of God's beauty and worth. So it's when he allows in a public way for his beauty and worth to go on display like a billboard. He goes public with it. So the the first way that we see God going public with his glory, his beauty, his worth is in creation. That's Psalms 19.1. It says the heavens declare the handiwork of God. The, the whole earth proclaims his glory. So the glory of God is seen in, in the works of his hands, in creation. You, you think about, what do you think that the birds are singing about? What, what do you think that the, the waves are moving to? What rhythm? They're moving to the rhythm of the song of heaven that says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you and I had eyes to be able to see, the glory of God is everywhere in creation. It's everywhere. We're meant to be able to look at a sunset or look at a a mountaintop or look at trees or flowers or water We're meant to look at the galaxies and the stars and the sun, and it's God screaming at you and me that he is glorious. It's the most basic way that God shows us his glory. Jonathan Edwards describes it like this, that God was completely satisfied. He was completely content in and of himself. When the Trinity existed before the foundations of the world, God didn't need creation to supplement something that was lacking. It's not like he created us or creation because he was missing something. He was totally and completely full of his own glory. And Jonathan Edwards says, it was as if God was busting at the seams with his own glory, like a, a geyser ready to erupt And he had to go public with it. 
And so the first way that God goes public with his glory that we see and are able to understand what God's glory is is in creation. Number two, later in the book of Psalms, Psalms 135, verse 5, it says that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Uh, Randy and I were spending some time together this week and we, we started talking about Abraham Lincoln, which is not a very riveting conversation, I promise, especially if you're not really into history. So, which I'm not, he is. So we started talking about Abraham Lincoln, and according to Randy, Abraham Lincoln was not a very assuming guy. I mean, meaning he wasn't, nobody thought this guy's who's going to take us home. He's going to accomplish one of the biggest feats in American history by abolishing slavery. He wasn't the guy on the docket. He wasn't first up to be able to do something like that. Kind of a gangly guy, uh, failed a bunch of times in Senate races and presidential campaigns and other things. So anyway, we were talking about, and we started talking about how interesting it is that certain people accomplish certain things in history. That uh, if you look back even to the birth of Jesus, and a couple advents ago, if you were here, we talked about this. It was called the Pax Romana, and it was the historical implications that Rome was becoming the trade capital of the world, really, and that it was the perfect time for Jesus to be born because the gospel was able to spread, because everything sort of came out of Rome and went to the, to the, the ends of the earth. And so you think about these unique things that happen in history that you go back and say, well, what if that wouldn't have happened? What if, what if God wouldn't have orchestrated? What if I wouldn't have met my spouse? What if my child wouldn't have been born? What if, I, what if I would have gotten to that accident? And we can look back and see that God's glory is seen in his sovereignty over all things. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah talks about that no purpose for which God sets forth can be frustrated. Later in the book of Psalms and Proverbs even, it says that the the heart of a king is like a, a river in the hand of the Lord. He moves it wherever he wills. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, uh, as he's about to throw Daniel in the lion's den, says that you set up kingdoms and you tear them down. That kings rise and fall at your word. And so we see God's glory clearly in all that he does. Romans 8.28, which is a very popular verse, it says, um, I just blanked on it, what does it say? What does it say? Thank you. All things work together for the good of those who love him, Right? Well, if you flesh that out, what that says also is that what our good is, all things work together for the good of those who love him, is also God's deepest joy. So, all things also work together for God's good, for God's glory, all things, which means that whether it's tragedy like we see in Job or it's joy, or it's hardship like we see with Joseph, 
when uh, he sold into slavery, says, what you intend for evil, I intended for good. So God is sovereign over all things. And there's joy in that because it shows us another dimension. It's a, another describing factor of what his glory looks like and tastes like and touch and feels. And there's probably no clearer example of God's sovereignty, God's control over all things, than him sending his son to be murdered for our sins. Second Corinthians chapter four says that the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. There is no clearer or more precise or more definitive picture of God's glory than we see in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is praying for us, he's praying for you, he's praying for me in John chapter 17, he says, Father, I want them to see the glory that you've given me. Will you let my people see the glory for which you have given me? And Jesus Christ is the physical manifestation or representation of, the God, of God's glory. And he is the most infinitely valuable being in all of creation. And this is why when Moses comes down from communing with God on the mountain, his face shined so brightly. And he, Moses didn't even see God's glory. He caught like the shadow's shadow of God's glory. And that was enough to illuminate his face. And so later on, Paul looks back on that event in 2 Corinthians, and he starts explaining what exactly was going on when Moses was coming down, and he says, Moses was a part of the old covenant, the law. And if Moses' covenant, the old covenant, gave him that much radiance and God's glory shone that brightly, how much more do, do you think, and this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church, do you think that the new covenant will be lit up with God's glory? How much more brightly do you think the new covenant, which is Jesus Christ, how much more brightly do you think that shines? And so that's the third way that we see clearly God's glory. Creation, his sovereignty over all things, and the fact that his son, Jesus, is the perfect representation of the glory of God. He's the perfect ambassador for what the glory of God looks like, sounds like, and acts like. It's in the person, or as 2 Corinthians says, in the face of Jesus Christ. The fourth way 
as if the other three weren't enough for us to get a clear picture of what the glory of God is. Because remember, the glory of God is the going public, the public display of his beauty and worth. As if creation, as if his sovereignty and control over all things everywhere, as if his son Jesus Christ wasn't enough, those weren't enough ways for us to begin to understand what the glory of God is. He, he gives us another way. He, he belabors the point to us. Let me read you a quote by John Piper. It says, all the different ways God has chosen to display his glory in creation and redemption seem to reach their culmination in the praises of his redeemed people. I'll read one more time. All the different ways God has chosen to display his glory in creation and redemption seem to reach their culmination in the praises of his redeemed people. The most basic and probably the easiest way for you and I to be able to describe and also see the glory of God is in the people of God. You know, there's a reason that God loves the local church. There's a lot of reasons why God loves the local church. But one of them is, is that we are a collective body of God glorifiers. That we're not off as sort of rogue agents trying to glorify God on our own, but that we're collectively, as a redeemed people, displaying the glory of God. And it it seems as though if God delights in his own glory, if God delights in his own glory, then it seems as if God's apex of his own delight, so God's pleasure, I know this is sort of weird language, but God's own pleasure, its mountaintop or its peak is when his people who are redeemed are praising him. That's you, that's me. The apex of God's delight is in the praises of his people. And so the, the interesting thing is that is also the praises of his people is also the application piece of what we do with God's glory. You know, because if we're honest, you and I are, we're pretty much Pharisees. We're, we're doers. We're big on works. I thought I'd get an amen from that, but you guys don't want to admit it. <laughs> you are, I am. We're workers. We want to do. Tell me what I have to do with the glory of God. Hey, that's really great. I'm appreciative of the glory of God. What do I do with it? Tell me what to do. I need to work. I need to do something with it. How do I be a better husband? How do I love God more? How do I raise my children in fear and admonition of the Lord? How do I serve my church better? How do I work more diligently to, to God's glory? The essence of worship, what it means to worship something is that you behold it and then you respond to it. 
You behold it, and then you respond to it. You don't respond and then behold. So the answer to the question, tell me what to do with it, is to behold it. Behold it. Now we get squirmy. We say, no, okay, but after I behold it, what do I do with it? You behold it. You stare at the glory of God through the person of Jesus until he stirs your heart for him. You cannot do anything other than behold the glory of God. All those other things, being a better parent, being a better Christian, being a better worker, that all flows from the fountain of beholding and treasuring the glory of God above everything. By fixing your eyes on Jesus, who is the exact image of the glory of God, and saying, I find you more valuable than anything, anywhere, anytime. There is nothing in all of creation that is more valuable or more satisfying than you. And when our sin starts to creep in and we start to wander from that and say, okay, now tell me what to do. What do I do? We sit and we behold the glory of God. Because there is no deeper joy than beholding the glory of God. Psalm 16 says there is fullness of joy in your presence. Let me read a quote to you by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It's its, it's, its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. What does that mean? It means we behold the glory of God. And the only way we can capture that delight by praising it. You guys ever had a really good cheeseburger? Biscuit, okay, Ronnie, five guys. Biscuit down in Polly's Island. If I ate the cheeseburger and never told anybody about it, it would lose part of its enjoyment. Because the enjoyment the delight isn't complete until praise is expressed. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. So it's not just that we behold the glory of God, but it's that we worship it and praise it and hold it up as more valuable than anything that we could ever have from anyone anywhere. And so when you fight to want to squirm and become doers and become Pharisees, like I've been fighting with all week. 
what you do with the glory of God is you just look at it and you behold it. You behold it until it gives up all its riches to you, until your soul is satisfied. You know, Satan's primary, his primary concern is getting you not to behold the glory of God. Because from that, if he can get that, everything else falls. Satan's chief purpose in our lives is to try and move our eyes from beholding the glory of God. (laughs) This is so good. I'm reading a lot of quotes. I was doing a lot of reading this week. Read you one last quote. We're wrapping up. As if beholding the glory of God wasn't good enough, and it is, it gets even better. Let me just read the quote. This is Jonathan Edwards. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. This is the payoff right here. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. First John tells us that we don't fully know the glory of God yet. We can't. God tells Moses, no man can look at my glory and live. And so these are just tastes. These are appetizers. These are teasers. And one day, 1 Corinthians tells us, we see in a a glass darkly, but then one day we'll be face to face and we'll stare at Christ and all the, all the glories that we thought we knew, that we thought we pursued, that we thought were valuable will fall down by the wayside like fool's gold and we will stare at Christ and he will give us infinite joy and satisfaction and there will be no end to your joy. Every, every satisfaction that you thought you knew here It's going that way. That's where it's going. It's going that way towards God. And when we stand before him, we will be like him. And it says we will see him for who he is. And we will enjoy him and our joy will increase forever. Our satisfaction. Because what do you you want out of life? You want to be happy, don't you? Happiness, joy, satisfaction, 
fulfillment is only found in Jesus Christ. And when we meet him and we are like him and we see him for who he is, he is the fountain of all joy and satisfaction, a fountain that never ends and actually grows with intensity. We will never want for anything. It will be as if we never had a need. It will be as if we never knew dissatisfaction. And God's design is that we don't have that yet. But through his creation, through his sovereign hand holding everything together, through the praises of his people, and through the life and death and resurrection of his son, it gives us a window into what it'll be like. Because there are, there are three types of people. And at some point in my life, I know I've been one of the three. First type of person is a person who doesn't even see the glory of God. It says the whole earth is full of his glory. His glory is everywhere. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the beauty that's found in the face of Jesus Christ. So type of person number one, you don't even see the glory of God. Type of person number two, you see it and do nothing with it. Or person number three, you behold the glory of God and you apprehend it. You pursue it. You chase it. You look at it to be more satisfying than money, than family, than life, than health, than children, than anything everywhere. Will you give your life to the pursuit of beholding the glory of God? Will you? Will you give your life to pursuing the worship of the glory of God? Because friend, if you do, though everything in life may be taken from you, Christ never will be. Though you lose or gain everything, you will always have Christ. Will you give your life to pursuing and beholding the glory of God? Because if you do, you will never be without. Let me pray for us. Father, we know that these are but shadows. <laughs> these are but scattered beams. Lord, that the fullness of joy dwells in your Son. 
that though we are tempted even tomorrow, even as we leave here, to move our eyes away from beholding your glory. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict your people, convict me to fix our eyes on Jesus, to stare and behold your glory until we wring from it every joy and satisfaction that you've intended for our souls. Would you give us a a heart that encourages the members of this church to delight deeply in that truth? In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.